You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome to Commute, the podcast, your weekly dose of stories and recommendations to make you more intelligent, well-informed, and well, let's be honest, more interesting. As always, we'd love to have you rate, subscribe, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And thank you once again for including our show. We are honored to be included in uh, what is uh, an ever-expanding world of podcasts. So thanks for making us part of your drive and part of your life. On this edition of Commute the Podcast, will pent-up demand drive our economy forward following the end of COVID? Sitcom laugh tracks. Where did they come from and where are they going? Can humans recognize genius without the proper context? We'll explore a study that answers the question. All of that on this edition of Commute the Podcast. Let's get to it. All right, Dave. So to start out this first segment that we're going to look at, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, Let's pretend that the COVID pandemic is over. We're recording this right now in February of 2021. We're still in the middle of the COVID pandemic. But let's pretend that tomorrow it was over. What would be the first thing that you've been dying to do? Well, you know, sporting events matter to me. I'd love to watch a live sporting event. Um, music, live music. I'd love to see live music, but I'm going to take a more simplistic answer. I just love to be with a large group of people. So whether it be in a house, out to eat somewhere, I just love to be with a lot of friends all at the same time. And Dave, you're actually not alone. Uh, The majority of Americans right now feel the same as you do. We are coming up on the year anniversary of the COVID pandemic, and it doesn't really seem that we have a tangible end in sight to it at the moment. Um, There are signs, you know, with vaccine distribution and and things like that, that maybe we are nearing some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. But right now, I think it's pretty safe to say that Americans feel like they are – kind of being pent up uh, with this energy to go to sporting events, to go to weddings, to go on vacation, to buy things, uh, to go to the movies. A lot of Americans have not spent the level of money that they would normally spend uh, during this past year. They've been inside. They haven't been going to events. A lot of businesses have put things off like business travel and conventions. And so because of that, we're entering this period where Americans are, are kind of on the cusp of okay, well, we feel like it's almost over and I can see the end of the tunnel where I'm going to uh, I'm going to big events, I'm going to the movies, I'm doing all these things. We've seen movie theaters push their release dates for their big movies back. We've seen sporting events uh, not allow fans into the stadiums. Uh, and economists actually have a term for this. They call it pent-up demand. Pent-up demand is this idea that people have been prevented from spending money on something. And so whenever they finally get the chance to do that again, they spend lavishly on that thing. You know, we talked about this a little bit last week with the baseball cards. People all of a sudden had some extra income where a lot of us were struggling. Some people thought, well, yeah, I got a cool million. I'll just throw it on a rookie card. Yeah, a perfect example. 
right? It's the same type of thing. It's this idea that we've been we've been held back, and then we've just kind of gathered this energy around getting wanting to go out, wanting to spend money, wanting to do things again. Now, uh, can we look to history to find an instructor for this? And the answer is yes. We have to go back to the year 1918. In 1918, uh, soldiers were coming back from World War One, and when they came back, they brought back with them the Spanish flu. So the Spanish flu is uh, in some ways very parallel to the COVID pandemic. There were a lot of similarities. The Spanish flu lasted about a year. It was much more deadly than coronavirus on a whole. On a whole, the Spanish flu inspired a lot of similar things: social distancing, mask wearing, a, a banning on public gatherings uh, for about a year. In the same way that COVID has. So what happened then after the Spanish flu? Well, you saw an explosion of spending. You saw uh, baseball attendance double. You saw people going to the newly created movie theaters. And in some ways, you know, we've all heard of the Roaring Twenties. In some ways, economists and historians say that uh, the Roaring Twenties were propelled forward by pent-up demand. Right now, 82% of American families have already made 2021 travel plans, uh, which shows that there seems to be a great deal of confidence that maybe we, as we do kind of come to the end of the coronavirus pandemic, maybe we will see our economy sort of lurch forward as people go out into the world and begin spending and experiencing uh, in that way again. So, Jay, what's your favorite sitcom all time all time is tough i mean i have to consider the whole package so for me i'm probably going to go with the office i know that the office uh had sort of a troubled run at the end its episodes weren't as well received i would say my favorites are either the office as well parks and recreation or seinfeld and what's interesting about those shows is two of those utilize a documentary style filming and no laugh track And one of them, Seinfeld, which is arguably the greatest sitcom of all time, does utilize a laugh track. So our story on laugh tracks begins with a guy named Charlie Douglas who would not have liked The Office or Parks and Rec. So Charlie Douglas, good old Charlie, was a sound engineer working at CBS in the early days of TV. And Charlie did not like what he was hearing with live studio audiences. Douglas thought that studio audiences laughed at the wrong moments, didn't laugh at the right moments, or laughed too loudly for too long. So hence, the sitcom Laugh Track was born in 1950 and debuted on the Hank McCoon Show. I know you're a big Hank McCoon fan, so you probably have all those on DVD. Hank who? (laughs) Hank McCoon. (laughs) The idea of the Laugh Track, Jay, spread rather quickly after 1950. It caused immediate controversy as well, and that controversy has somewhat lasted into today. Actor and producer David Niven, in fact, said in 1955, and I quote, The laugh track is the single greatest affront to public intelligence I know of and will never be foisted on any audience of a show that I have some say about. Well, TV producers, Jay, largely remained married to the idea, much to Niven's chagrin, providing some sort of audience reaction to make the viewing experience what what they thought as more of a community event. In fact... Some shows began to utilize both a live audience and a laugh track. Some shows, like The Honeymooners and the legendary I Love Lucy, were filmed in front of a live studio audience and tested very well with viewers, further proving the point to some execs that you needed some laughing voices to carry a comedy show. People watching at home got to feel like they were right there when the audience laughed, that they were part of the show. So why wouldn't TV execs love it? 
even some cartoons, Jay. You probably haven't even realized this. The Flintstones and the Jetsons. Okay, think about this. Cartoons utilize laugh tracks. Yeah, you don't really think about it. I mean, I'm trying to kind of play back those cartoons in my mind, but it's almost like the laugh track has become embedded in those old sitcoms so much that it's become just a part of it, and you don't even really recognize that it's there anymore. It's like, what was the audience supposed to be doing, watching them draw the Jetsons? I mean, just (laughs) when you think about people sitting in a room laughing at a cartoon, it's kind of funny. But soon shows like Everybody Loves Raymond and the aforementioned Seinfeld came on the scene, and they utilized laugh tracks. While modern comedies, like a couple that we've mentioned, The Office and Parks and Rec, have been created to utilize documentary-style filming, which does not lend itself to a laugh track, those 90s and 2000s comedies like Seinfeld, like the show Friends, um, even like The Big Bang Theory, a more recent show, they're honestly creepy, Jay, when you take away the laugh track. If you YouTube if you search on YouTube, sitcoms without laugh tracks, instant nightmares. Yeah, I have a very, uh, you know, there's some YouTube videos that just never leave you. And uh, there's one for me, it's a, it's the exact video you just described, but it's of the Big Bang Theory. I'm not really a Big Bang Theory fan anyway, but uh, but the uh, the particular video is just a scene for the Big Bang Theory with the laugh tracks taken out and that's all almost feels like they're just being really mean to each other. Like the things that they're saying, like you're just like, oh, that was really mean. You know, and a lot of it is the way that those jokes are spaced out. So the scripts are written to utilize a laugh track in many of those 90s and 2000s sitcoms. So it just, it wasn't even created for an audience to react organically to it. So, you know, thinking about that as as TV evolves, Jay, are we going to lose the laugh track? I, I don't know. One thing I think is that we'll always have it around probably in some capacity because it brings a level of comfort to people who are watching a show by themselves. In fact, a psychology professor at Dartmouth College named Bill Kelly put it this way. We're much more likely to laugh at something funny in the presence of people. And I think that that describes perfectly why America will always have some kind of love for the laugh track. All right, Dave, and to wrap us up, I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite uh, studies that I've ever read about because I think it just really helps us understand how much context matters in our understanding of the world. So this was a study conducted by the Washington Post in 2007, and they were just wanting to explore the idea of context and perception. And it's kind of that old idea of, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it really make a sound? Uh, and so what what things around us are causing us to experience the world in a different way? So they did this really fascinating thing. They brought in this violinist named Joshua Bell. Now, most people haven't heard of Joshua Bell, just name recognition, but he's one of the most famous violinists in the world. He's a former child prodigy. He's played all over the world. He's played for uh, politicians in Europe. He's played sold-out crowds in the United States. He's been all over the world playing the most complicated pieces in the world. So on January 12, 2007, uh, the Washington Post brought Joshua Bell to a subway station in Washington, D.C., had him put on normal street clothes, open up his violin case, and play for 43 minutes. What was he playing and what was he playing on? Because I think that makes it even more fascinating. He was playing two pieces by Bach, and these are two of the most, uh, two of the most complicated pieces to play on a violin that exist. He was also playing on a Stradivarius violin. If you uh, know anything about musical instruments, you'll know that Stradivarius violins are priceless. They're worth worth millions of dollars, and there's only a handful in the world. 
So, Jay, this is almost like Jimi Hendrix or Carlos Santana, somebody who's a legendary guitarist playing guitar for free in a subway. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So, so he's playing the Stradivarius violin. This thing is worth $3.5 million that he's Man. playing with. And so he opens up his case. He plays for 43 minutes. 1,097 people pass by. Now, three days before, he had sold out Boston Symphony Hall at seats that cost a minimum of $100. And these people, these 1,097 people, are getting a free concert to see this guy feet away playing the most complicated music on the most expensive violin, and he's one of the best violin players in the world. So we would expect a massive crowd to gather. We would expect people to go crazy, to ask for autographs, and it's not what happened at all. In fact, seven people stopped for at least a minute Wow! to listen to Joshua Bell. Uh, 27 people gave money and put it in his violin case for a total of $32. So that means 1,070 people simply passed by without paying any attention whatsoever. It opens up such an interesting conversation. Joshua Bell is a prodigy. He's a genius when it comes to playing the violin. But we we took away, the Washington Post took away the context that you sort of need to process that level of genius. So you're not sitting in a concert hall. You're not paying hundreds of dollars for a ticket. And so when that happens, something changes in our brain. And it's almost like the genius, the the level of talent, almost can't transcend the change in the context. Uh, you, and you can actually, and I would encourage you to do this when you get the chance, when you get to your destination, uh, open up YouTube and type in Joshua Bell Violin Subway and find the video because it's it makes it even more fascinating to watch people just simply walk by and pass by once in a generation talent. You know, I think some of this has to do with celebrity. Um, if you had no idea who LeBron James was and you're at the local YMCA and LeBron James is playing, you would probably look at him. Now, he's huge, so it's a little bit different. But I'm saying this more in terms of you would see someone who's good at something, but if you didn't recognize them, if you didn't know who they were, I'm not sure it would really matter to the average person as much just because we are drawn to celebrity. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and um, to me, this study sort of challenges me to try to slow down and try to try to just remove the importance of the context and just focus on what's in front of me and what I think about it in that moment. Well, that'll do it for this week's edition of Commute, the podcast. Remember, please rate, review, and subscribe to Commute on your favorite podcast platform and give us a follow on social. All our social handles are available in the show notes. Also, if you know anybody that would dig what we're trying to do with the podcast, would you mind sharing it? We're really excited about the community we're building around our mission to make your commute less painful. So Music for Commute is provided by Jason Sammons. And if you'd like to go deeper on any of today's stories, you'll find links in the show notes. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. Hopefully you've arrived safely and we can't wait to hang out with you again next week.